a bit. I like what he said. Did you hear it? He said, give Jamie 20 minutes. And I, I heard that, so I'm, <laughs> I'm with you. Yes. I, uh, speaking of Lodko, I called Kathy last night, and I, uh, I had a somber tone, and I said, Honey, we're going to have to have more children. <laughs> but I said, it, it's for the sake of democracy. <laughs> she thinks I'm after something else in that equation. <laughs> uh, gosh. That was great. That was a great uh, message last night. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for, um, for your life that's so richly here in all of our lives. When we tell our stories, we're telling stories of you. And um, we're so thankful of, of you giving yourself to us and our friendship with you. And you have taught us how to relate to you and how to relate to each other. And then you've given us each other. Thank you for this room of people. Thank you for their stories. Thank you for our story. And then, Lord, we recognize you're not done with us yet, so we pray that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, not only today, but through our time together, through our conversations in the hallways, and you'd continue to weave us together with you and with each other into a much larger story. And we thank you for this morning. We pray that your spirit would be here, that you'd fill our hearts with faith, that we'd hear you speak to us, and that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So I really liked Brian's concept of... Um, of remembering, that's great, like the whole to remember. And, um, and I was thinking about the importance of us remembering our, our own story. First of all, the way I think of remembering, which is looking back and remembering where we've come from, remembering who we are. Um, uh, but then second of all, um, remembering, re repopulating it, re-standing re, uh, in it and being who we are. So I was thinking about, for me, I, may, I, I realize sometimes I go around and I tell all of your stories. I do. I, I do a lot of telling the stories of like Robert and Paul meeting, and I do a lot of the stories of telling about Kevin and Jim being in the meeting when Robert walks in and Bob Mumford says, I told you I'd see you again, and then you guys go in and sit in behind him in the meeting. And um, I, I do a lot of telling of those stories, but I do recognize that some of my telling of your stories is skewed by my own perspective of my story with you. And um, so I, I, wanted, I wanted to be honest with you about the way that I've seen our story together, and this is completely based on my own experience of it, and so uh, it's like Brett said, I have the mic. Um, but my story with you has been that you're a group of people, Dow said this to me one time, he said, we're a group of people who have, a, have God's, in a special way, revealed relationship to us. And I mean, that was Dow's perspective, and that's, that's been my sense with you guys. I, um, I grew up in a family that was pretty good at relationships, my extended family. I had uncles, and I had aunts around me who loved me and cared for me. My first grade class, I came in. My aunt had been the teacher, and she had just left for maternity leave when I transferred in. And when I was in third grade, the teacher next to me in my classroom at a public school was my uncle, and he'd come in and lift me up upside down. And So I had great relationships, but I had a dad who, because of his struggle with alcoholism, and because he had come from a great family, he struggled to relate. And so when I came into all of you, I, I found a group of people who were full of life and good, good men and who were willing to relate with me. And so I, I think one thing that I think of our story always is about relationship. I think the second thing I, I think about our story is it's relationship that helps um, cultivate or enhance or promote each other's development. And that may not be the way you guys see yourself, but I think of 
developmental relationships. I don't think that I've just hung out with you guys forever and I know more about cigars than anything else, which I guess that would be developmental on one level. Um, but what I think about, <laughs> sorry, what I think about is that I have grown because of my relationship with you. I think the way you have related to me has promoted, has enhanced, has encouraged, has at times provoked my growth. And so that's my own story. And, and it comes from the fact that the way I got to know you guys is a guy named Jim Newsom pulled up at my house. My face had been torn apart. My body had been torn apart. My life was torn apart. I was an atheist. I was an angry 140-pound rebel, and Jim pulled up, and uh, are we strong here? Yeah. Am I hearing a, a massive amount of ringing? Are we okay? Okay. So Jim pulls up into my driveway. Um, my parents had asked if I would meet with him. They, Jim uh, came and got his hair cut by my mom, and so um, they had been going to church there. I had come back from Arizona. I was in Orlando, Florida, and Jim, and they asked, would you meet with this guy, Jim? Because it was pretty obvious I was broken and I was struggling, and Jim was a a pastor of a church, and he had told my mom, I'm pretty good with young people, so let me add him. So, so Jim pulls up around 2.30 in the afternoon in a not a cool looking car, it was like a clunky Oldsmobile, and he takes me to go look at office furniture. Like that was what we did together. It wasn't, it wasn't real youthy, like we didn't. But we go look at office furniture together, and he just starts to tell me the story about how he killed a man, and about how um, he found God's forgiveness, and about how God showed up and uh, how a 16-year-old girl walked into his house and, and said, you know, in, in 15 minutes you're going to turn, get down on your knees in the other room and give your life to Jesus. And then it happened. And I remember at the time, I was, I remember at the time thinking one of the big things, even though I didn't believe in God, is that I believed if there was a perfect father, how in the world would he be interested in me? And specifically just based on who I was. And as Jim was telling a story, I just thought, well, he killed somebody and God loves him. And, and <laughs> That story was, was really encouraging to me. <laughs> so, um, so we just kept driving around. We went over, we washed his car and stuff like that. He started to tell a story about, um, he told a story about how he had been speaking and God kept speaking to him that a girl in the crowd, that somebody in the crowd had a headache. So he had said it several times. I had never heard anybody talk about God speaking. I thought that churches were like temples, that I thought they were money-making schemes, and I thought it was just the statue, and people rubbed the statue, but the idea that there was interaction was spun me, like didn't, didn't just intrigue me. Everything changed the moment he said that. And, and then, we, then we went back, and, um, and he basically said, you know, here's a Bible, you know, you kind of believe in God, because God had started to speak to me before I'd met with him, and he said, ask the God you believe in if Jesus is real. And, and he'll show you. And if not, I'll take you to the beach and I'll buy the booze, which I was afraid of alcohol because my dad had struggled with that. But it was pretty cool that a religious guy would offer that. So, so I went back and the word came alive and you guys know a lot of that story. But the rest of that story is Jim Newsom picking me up every week, sometimes twice a week, to play basketball with me. Like we would, Jim's a really good basketball player. When you play for nine straight years in prison and you're running full court basketball all the time, you're great. Jim's a Larry Bird like basketball player. So... Most of the time, he would humiliate me, and uh, we, we still, I was with him a few weeks ago, we still remember one game where I almost won, <laughs> but, um, but he, we would, he would be backing me down on the low post, and he would say, so girls, what about girls? I was like, I like them, <laughs> and he said, well, what are you doing with them? I'm trying not to do anything, you're the pastor, <laughs> and stuff like that, and, and those conversations and the giving of life, and one day he picked me up and he said, um, hey, you brought a different girl to church every week. 
and he said, if you play by the riverbed too long, you're going to fall in. He said, what's going on there? And it, it was great, you know. It was, um, uh, within that, uh, Jim invited me into his world. He invited me into the church, and the church was filled with a bunch of people who had been in prison with Jim. So uh, one of the guys' name was Fellowship Shorty. It's Raymond Brinson. Uh, and what was great is when you were drawn into their lives, you were drawn into their stories. When Jim was in prison, he was in one cell block, and Fellowship Shorty got located in the other cell block, and they didn't like each other. They were both parts of the Christian community, but they didn't like each other. And the only way you can individuate in prison is to get... Um, shoes, cool shoes. So he had ordered those Converse clown shoes, the three different colors, and I mean, that was about as good as it got, right? Well, the shoes come in, and as he's opening them out of the package, God speaks to him and says, you need to go give these shoes to Raymond, or to Brinson. So he's furious, but he grabs the shoes, and he starts walking, he gets halfway to the cell block, and Raymond walks up to him and says, are those my shoes? And he grabs the shoes and turns around. (laughs) Raymond was about this tall, He's a black guy with huge muscles. One time we were in a church move and he was heading up the stairs with the washing machine on his shoulder. I mean, <laughs> it's just really great. Well, four or five days into it, Jim says, you need to go play on the softball team. I said, I'm not a very good athlete, as you've seen in basketball. And he said, uh, uh, they'll figure it out. There's a lot of guys out there. Half the guys are wasted. <laughs> he says, just get out there. So I'm standing out in right field, of course. And... Um, <laughs> and and we're in a community, it's a, it's a rough community, and two girls are walking by, so I'm watching the girls walking by, and Raymond comes running out from, he's pitching batting practice, he comes running out and he walks up to me, and he pulls his glove off, and he slaps me across the face. <laughs> he says, what are you doing? I said, I, I was, I'm just, I'm playing right field. He said, no, you're, you're looking at those girls, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm just looking at girls. He said, but that's your problem, isn't it? And I said, well, yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, you have to answer a question right now. Are you here to play games, or are you for real in this? He said, because we're not screwing around. And I said, I'm here, I'm here. And then he said, okay, well, you're going with me to the prison this weekend. He says, you're going to share your story. I said, what story? He said, well, what you've done since you met Jesus. I said, I met him four days ago. He said, well, it's going to be a short story. <laughs> and so off we go. <laughs> Raymond would preach in the prison and a guy would be falling asleep. This is a guy's conference, so I can say this. So a guy would be falling asleep. He'd reach down, he'd pick the guy up and he'd say, are you going to fall asleep to the word of God and then go back and take the underwear ads (laughs) and masturbate in your room? And then he'd throw the guy back down. (laughs) I'd never seen anything like this in my life. (laughs) That sounds really rough, but that's the kind of stuff that some of those guys needed. So so I got to be with those guys and I was was in home groups. Uh, Raymond would always say, (laughs) <laughs> and I would say, well, Paul told me the other day, <laughs> he many had been reading one of the epistles from Paul, but it took me a while to figure out that Raymond wasn't really talking to Paul. I, and, and these guys would confront you, and they would mess with you. And, and to be a young man, I was the only young person in the church. So um, Bill Burge, a 70-year-old man each week, would come up next to me and say, how's band going? I was like, yeah, I'm in the marching band. He's like, yeah, I know. How's it going? And so we'd sit and talk. And People invested in me. A lot of people rebuked me. I got rebuked a lot. Um, the worship leaders invited me over to try to reach me, I think. And I, they said, we'd like you to listen to mu- some music. It's Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant. I said, this is great. I've got some people too. Prince and Madonna, are you guys ready for this? So, those were developmental relationships. And um, I grew to love Jim. He let me into his family. He let me into his life. I got to go places with him. I traveled with him. He would tell me his stories. He would introduce me to the people who he knew. I was with all the guys he was in prison with. I would get their stories about each other. 
And for a guy who grew up around really amazing uncles and aunts and family, I was taken to another family who was equally concerned with my development, and I, I was so thankful for it. I was with Jim when I met Paul for the first time. Paul came in and did our men's retreat. Uh, I was way out in central Florida and just sat and watched Paul. I just watched him and thought, he's a little different than these guys. <laughs> and, uh, and that was great and, and got to know a lot of you. Um, at one point, I, uh, Jim picked me up to take me to a youth conference in Gatlinburg, and he said, well, there's a guy named John Stanko. He's coming in to pastor the church, and anybody who's been pastored by me is going to go over to be pastored by John. And I cried all the way to Gatlinburg. I cried. I said, what did I do wrong? Like, I, I love you. I don't, I don't want to go be with somebody else. Like, what happened? What's, what's wrong? And he said, Jamie, no, there's nothing wrong. He said, this is better. We'll get to be closer friends. I don't have to be thinking about, you know, watching after you the same way. And so, so then those two were together. And John, as many of you know, is like the David Letterman of the kingdom of God. He was... Um, sarcastic and piercing and a great administrator. And I, I went to the university, I had no car, and I went to the university an hour away from where, where the, the church was. And I remember running through the rain to get to a three o'clock meeting with him. And I walked and he could see me from his desk, running through the rain, getting, getting to his office, walking in at 3.05 for a three o'clock meeting. And he said, so 3.05? I said, I said, three? And I said, it's, it's raining and stuff like that. He said, yeah. He said, you're a musician. You guys are all crazy. <laughs> but J John was great for me because John was really tough. He was really hard. And he would just say to me, um, come on. You know, you know, and he would take me places. And, and I remember one day I walked into his office and there's a picture of Moses up on the wall with Joshua. And I said, hey, that's like us. And he turned and he said, you dare to compare yourself to Josh? <laughs> just, half of the time, John was kidding. I'd walk in kind of with tears in my eyes, being like, I'm just struggling with this, and this is happening in my life. And he'd say, can I come around and sit with you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're going to have to get on the phone. And I'd say, what are you talking about? He said, well, apparently, Jesus is no longer on the throne. So we are going to have to call media outlets. We're going to have to do this stuff. And I was like, no, I mean, I know he's on the throne. So then I'd come in the next week bouncing. This happened. It was a great thing. And he'd be like, this is so great. He's back on the throne. And, and John just had that way of making you not commit the same mistake twice. Um, and so that sounds really cruel and stuff. But that's exactly what I needed. Here are the things that John Stinko did in my life. He said, what are you called to do? What's your purpose? And then he did everything possible to invest in me. You're called to young people. I want to introduce you to a guy named Chris Hyatt, who's leading a youth group up in Mobile. We're going to send you each summer to intern with him. You're interested in young people. I want to introduce you to a guy named Pete Sanchez, who has taken a group of young people around the world in a group called Run to the Battle. And you're going to travel with them through 19 states in 18 days because you need to see what it's really like. Oh, you're interested in young people? Well, my spiritual father, Joseph Garlington, has a church up in Wilkinsburg. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and you're going to go intern there two summers in a row, and you're going to be invested in, and you're going to be around people who are doing this, and maybe let's see what God says to you. And then I want to report after each time and tell me what God's saying to you. And then I said, well, I don't really know how to hear his voice. He said, okay, well, let's deal with that. So he said, I want you to take a journal, and I want you to write every single thing that's hitting your heart. He said, movie lines, bumper stickers, lines from songs. When I'm speaking, write every single thing down that's pinging your heart. And then he said, and uh, then bring it back, and we'll read through it together. And so I brought it back, and he said, well, do you see any patterns there? You got in trouble at work for being late. And, da, 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 da. and he would, he would kind of help me see how God was already speaking. And then on my 18th birthday, on my 18th birthday, I walked into my bedroom, and for the first time ever, I heard him speak to me. He said, Jamie, you're going to go to Latin America, and you're going to reach young people. And I changed my major, and, and then he kept speaking. And I went back to John, and I said, 
he's speaking and he said, okay, well now bring back to me what you're hearing and let's just tune it in. That's a great gift, you know? That was about the best gift ever. Finally, John, as he stepped away from that church, uh, ended up with Chris Hyatt. And um, Chris and I, I think we both thought that I would be discipled or pastored by John Duke, who had, was great and I love very much and has had a significant place in my life. But one day I was with Chris and I was just realizing every time I was with Chris, I was growing more. Just getting to be with Chris, I got to join him in mission. I got to help young people with him and it was great. So I said one time, hey, what if you pastored me? And he said, um, <laughs> we kind of really giggled at it and stuff like that, but that began a, a great uh, relationship between a, the two of us. And what's great with Chris is Chris would take me with him into going and just serving and reaching young people. And he would do really cool stuff. Like one time I went to speak at the youth group and he said, after I got done speaking, he walked in and he said, do you want any feedback? And I was like, what? He said, on speaking, do you want any feedback? And I was like, yeah. And so then he just said, okay. And he would just kind of give feedback and, and that, kind of, that kind of situation, the way he cared for us. Uh, Kathy was gone. She was missing. My wife was missing when I first started walking with Chris. When she, he helped me and he walked me through at two in the morning, I would call him and say, um, I'm all alone in this house and I'm freaking out. Most days he would invite me over to his house and we'd watch Braves games. There's the famous, my favorite Braves game story with Chris was that we were watching a game and I was totally devastated and we're drinking a beer and the Braves were in the pennant race against the Giants. They, they were trying to get into the postseason and we were playing against the Expos and uh, our starting pitcher got knocked out in the second inning. It was looking horrible. So we, we took the kids to A&W Root Beer or Dairy Queen or something. When we got back, we walked into the house and um, sat down. We're down four to zero. And I just said, God, if you really love me, let the Braves score 18 runs and let us win this game. And Chris looked over and he just said, you're sort of in a pathetic state right now. <laughs> and asking God to do things like that is probably not a great idea. And so we're just sitting there as friends. And then all of a sudden, they, uh, somebody, it was Ron Gant or David Justice, hit a grand slam. Once it got to like 12 to four, Chris looked over at me and he said, don't you dare sit in my living room expecting that God's going to let them score 18 runs. So the end score was 18 to 4. And so Chris, above anything, became a witness to my life. He walked alongside it. And when Kathy came back, when she went to run again, when, when she was back and it was hurting, she ran to Chris's office. And Chris said, you're not really leaving. And she said, what do you mean? He said, well, you wouldn't be here in my office if you were really leaving. But let's start meeting together. And Kathy was funny. She said to... Uh, to Donna, Chris's wife, at one point. I know we're supposed to be best friends, but I have to be honest with you, when I'm with you, I feel like throwing up. And so Donna, Donna turned to her and said, well, sweetheart, while we're being so honest, let me tell you something. If you're here to make it work with this young man, I'm gonna fight with all my heart for you. But if you're here to hurt that young man, I'm gonna fight against you with everything in me. <laughs> That's a great relationship. <laughs> Kathy trusted her, that, that meant something to Kathy. Chris is the best friend I've ever had in my life, and I've had good friends. Um, I would call him a pastor, but I'd call him more than that. What he did is, as I was hearing God's voice, I'd show up in his office. I would sleep in his office. We'd work on youth group stuff, but I would just, I had no wife, so I had a lot of extra time, and I'd wake up, and we'd work on a document for a camp, but, but more than anything, he would hear what God was speaking to me, and he would just amen some things and say, hey, about that, I can remember one day I walked in, and I said, I know everybody's talking about Kathy being gone. I know these people are saying this. I know people are saying that. He said, Jamie, who? I was like, well, and he said, who? Like, who, who's saying all this? And I was like, nobody. He said, I think you're listening to the enemy a little bit. Nobody's saying anything, you know, but what a good friend, you know? So I can go on and I can talk about when Robert stepped in and um, 
Well, it was a great moment. I was reading John Eldridge's Wild at Heart and the part where it says every young man needs to hear, you know, you're a man now, right? And Chris had just stepped off the picture right at the point where I thought it was about to happen where I heard that. And Robert, and one of the first times that he was calling me after he had uh, become our pastor, just out of nowhere, I said something, well, I'm kind of a kid. And he said, no, Jamie. He said, you know, you're a man. It just happened spontaneously that I got the line. And I was like, yes, great. <laughs> done and done. I'm mentioning all that, and really, I only have a few other things to do, and I want to give you a tool that'll partially to to mess with us a little bit. But I mention that just to say that, to me, one massive part of our story has been the way that we've engaged each other in relationships and others in a way that has been developmental. We have made stories. And see, these days, that's not real popular for us to talk about, but it's getting really popular out there in the world to talk about mentoring and relationship and impact. And so... When I think about my story with you, I think about sitting in Kevin's living room. Kevin rebukes me better than anybody in the world. I enjoy the way he rebukes me, but he's so good at teaching me. He's so friendly here at the conference, but when he gets a hold of me, he'll get into this deeper conversation. By the time we're halfway through it, I realize, man, I've done this wrong. (laughs) And then I'll say, yeah, I think I've done it wrong. He's like, yeah, it's done, and then we'll go into it. That's great, that's great. I'm not saying I I want us to punch each other or anything, but a part of our story is that we're brothers born for adversity. Part of our story is that we participate in each other's life in a way that provokes real growth. And that is not easy to find out there. But it is a key, key part of God's story as you go through scripture. I just want to read a quick verse. Uh, John 1.35. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 1.35-42. And this is really to say that when Jesus told stories, he didn't always just use words. He used his entire life in a pretty dramatic way. So in 35, it says, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. This is um, John chapter one, verse 35. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples, says John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you'll see. Jesus did a really good job of just not giving people quick stories. He didn't even just give them a book. He said, come see it incarnated in a way that's pretty cool and dramatic. He didn't even just give them a a story where come see my story. He said, come see this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. Now go do it. And, And that's a telling of story that, first of all, is better than virtual it's better than most of what these video games are doing in their storytelling. It was pretty awesome, you know. Uh, a story goes way beyond words if it's a good story. A story incarnates itself. I want to go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's a pretty intense guy, but he's a pretty loving guy, and God uses him to change the world. And this is 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10. This is Paul talking to Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Which, by the way, you can be deceived through stories. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I was gonna take a scripture that has been our story together for me, it's been that one. I've been taught, I've been rebuked, I've been allowed to, you know all about my teaching, you know all about my life, he's saying. I've been able to know you, to be close to you, to be drawn into your life and to learn from you and then to even have you turn and look into my life and my story and to say things. And then finally I wanna read this, this is Jeremiah 23. 1 through 4, and it's the last scripture I'll mention today. No, it's, uh, that's not what it is. Hold on real quick. Oh, no, it is. 23, 1 through 4. Okay, so this is when it goes bad. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Which one of the best ways to destroy and scatter is to pay no attention to, you know, or to be passive. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them. It's a great line. And have not bestowed care on them. I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries which I have driven, where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. That's a story of when you don't have, or when people refuse to give what you guys have given to me and so many others. So if you look out there in the world right now, there are a lot of people who are not given relationship. Relationships are sort of falling apart. So guys and fathers have been gone for a while, but the last 30 or 40 years, mothers are now gone too. That's that statistic you guys hear me say a lot, that 1972 is more common in the United States for the mother of a 16-year-old to be stay-at-home than it is today for the mother of a 16-month-old. So what that means is that a huge population of stay-at-home moms are no longer at home, which I'm, I'm the working thing is no big deal, but think about what that means in neighborhoods. So not only is there no dad, but now there's no buddy. And what that really has done is changed neighborhoods. So now not only have you lost father, you've lost mother, but you've lost leave it to beaver neighborhood with Eddie coming over after school. What's replaced it is a massive amount of virtual reality. Uh, you know, what parents are saying is I won't be home till six or seven, but I'll get him the nicest game. And we've got Netflix, you know, and and parents are fine with kids being on computers till seven or eight or whatever because they're home and they're safe. But what's really being left out is relationship. The Ford Foundation is really doing a huge push right now to try to extend school days just so kids, so, and what will happen is the work day will now extend as well. So what you're seeing is a massive pulling out of relationship. You're seeing a massive pull out of care. And obviously the first place we're discipled is within our own nuclear family. So. The reason I mention that is that you're seeing weird stuff. You're seeing really weird stuff when you're out there talking to people. Um, I was with a group of guys from Morehouse University the other day and they were interns with our program and one of the guys wants to be a pastor, he's from Chicago, and he said to me, I, um, he said, I haven't been around a lot of men, he said, and I haven't been around a lot of adults. 
And he said, so I don't really like to be around a lot of men, and I don't like to be around a lot of adults. And he said, I don't like to be around older guys who try to teach me anything. He said, but what I really like to do is be with young people where I can teach them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really wacky. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's really, really wacky. And that's just, that's just what happens when you're in that kind of a situation. Um, I was thinking of, um, we were down in, in um, Kenya recently, and we were there with a young couple that Kevin knows, and we were going in to see the work that they're involved in. But every night we would come back to this facility where we would eat dinner together. And as we ate dinner with them, they would start to share a little bit about their lives. And we'd start to talk about hearing God's voice. We'd start to talk about different things. And they started each night to kind of really draw in and really pay attention to what we were saying. And and at one home, we were in a home in one of the slums, and we were, um, God spoke to me, and I said to the aunt who was taking care of the child, I felt like I needed to say something to her. So I said it, and when I walked out, um, the young man said, so you were in a lot of houses today, but in that house, why did you say that? I said, well, I really felt like God spoke or he said something. He said, yeah, I can't do that. Like, I don't know when he's speaking or when he's not, and certainly not enough to take action in that moment. He said, could we talk about that? And stuff like that. And, and what you're seeing is there's a whole lot of people who really would love somebody who's been loved to turn and love them and to walk with them and to care for them and to do all the things that we've done so well for so many years. And it's what we're really good at. It's a part of our story. If we forget this part of our story, we're like the man who turns away from the mirror and forgets his own face. We're like the salt that loses its saltiness. This is one of the things we're really good at. I'm not necessarily talking about discipleship or shepherding. I'm just talking about being present and really engaged in one another to, to go after it. What's sort of interesting is right now in the world, there's a whole group that are Harvard professors and people who are really focused on this stuff. It's kind of fascinating. And what they've seen is that there's, it's evidence-based that if you turn and focus on relationships with people, it has a dramatic impact on their lives. Uh, this morning I woke up and I had an email saying that there's an RFP out from Macedonia to do a youth internship program towards employment. And it was an RFP out there asking for NGOs to be able to do that. So um, I was just, you know, it's kind of interesting. Just doing a little bit of business, guys. No. Um, so I, I wanted to just give you guys some tools. I'm just going to show you these. Uh, yeah, please. A few guys help him pass these out. These, I'm not going to go all the way through. Don't get scared. But this is what's out there about being trained in relationship. What you're going to notice is be like, you're going to yawn. You're going to be like, oh, yeah, we've done that before. Um, and then I'm, I'm really wrapping up. I'll have a final few things to say. For me, um, I was listening to a Middle East, North Africa, social entrepreneurial incubator conversation the other day, and they were talking about the need for mentoring. And one of the statements of one of the great leaders is he said, there's no greater love that you'll ever find in your life than to be mentored by somebody. That was the comment of the Middle Eastern, I think he was Jordanian. It's um, kind of interesting. Um, so as you look at this, I just want to look at these two charts. This chart on the front, it's basically graphing out a mentoring relationship. So look at your own while I, I point to it. So the mentoring relationship's over on the left side. And they're basically saying if you can get to a point of mutuality, trust, and empathy, then you're on the horse. You get a chance there, which is pretty good. You know, reciprocity and trust and being able to understand. 
Then basically they've got three squares there of socio-emotional development, cognitive development, identity development, but it's also spiritual formation, leadership formation, all those be, are touched. So that part's not that interesting. Their point is if you can achieve mutuality, trust, and empathy, you impact this and it can lead to great outcomes. But here's the really interesting part is look at the mediator on the top and the moderators on the bottom. They're saying you're spending an hour a week with this guy or an hour a week with this, this girl. But remember, they're hanging out with their friends and their family up at the top, the parental and peer relationships, all the rest of the week. So while you're working with this person and their behaviors are changing, remember, there's, another relation, there's other relationships pushing on from the side. But then they're saying another thing that's pushing on the relationship is their interpersonal history. Have they been in a lot of relationships? Have they not? Have they been hurt? Have they not? Their social competencies. I used to call Johnny Stanko when I was his youth pastor, and I would try to talk to him on the phone, and he didn't know how a phone worked. I could be like, Johnny, Johnny, come back to the phone and stuff. Well, when you're in a mentoring relationship, some people are really good socially and some people have no social competencies whatsoever. Hey, I'm, I'm still here in front of you while we're eating lunch, you know, so that has a big part. Developmental stage, and obviously when you're used to working with adults like you guys are, they may be at a, <laughs> at a, a higher stage or not, but where are they? And then how long does the relationship last? Program practices, how do you conduct the relationship? And then what community and family are they from? That's just really interesting. It's just a chart that shows us what we all know, but they're really working on how do you do this better? And they're really engaged in it, and they're launching programs across the way. This is a fun one that you can use at home with your kids. This is talking about your style of leadership. So up towards the top, it's talking about um, it being more, uh, on the left side is more adult-centric, on the right side is more youth-centric. But then on the um, top is more playful. And then on the bottom, uh, let's see how you do this. There's a way. Okay, so for instance, on the top left would be adult-led, spontaneous, non-relational. So it's the preacher bore. <laughs> like just mentor-driven, saying all the stuff to you you don't want to hear. But now it switches over one over. It's more collaborative. It's a focus minimally on goal-directed. Oh, that's, that's where it is. So at the top is minimally goal-directed and minimally structured. On the bottom is highly structured. So unstructured but adult-led is preacher bore. Unstructured in kind of the middle is peer, classmate, acquaintance, just kind of hanging out. Unstructured, youth-centric is the joker, goofing around trying to make him happy. So you go through all these different ones, that are, but what they say is the sweet spot is the middle. A developmental mentor is somebody who says, I'm involved in this just to focus on the development of the relationship. And the instrumental one is saying, I'm involved in being in this relationship because I want to help you learn something. What they basically say is if you start in focusing on just building a relationship, sooner or later it has to turn to become practical. Sooner or later for it to be a lasting relationship, it has to develop some practical things. But if you focus on a practical needs and practical skill development, sooner or later it has to turn and focus on a rich relationship. But these two are the sweet spot. It's kind of interesting. If you really look at this, you can find yourself falling into these different roles in different moments, and they're just trying to figure out how do you adjust that. So those are interesting tools, but I, I'll finish with this. These days, um, a lot of my life is trying to make sure that young people get discipled and pastored or mentored or whatever you want to call it, but will they be developed? And what we're watching a lot of times is that if you're a church that's not doing this well, then that Jeremiah verse starts floating to the surface a little bit, right? So, so for me, um, these days, it's just the first level is kind of evangelistic pastoring. It's somebody, one guy came to me one time and he said, I want you to tell me what to do. I said, I can't tell you what to do. But then God spoke to me and he said, 
well, he can't hear my voice. You can tell him what to do to get to the point of being able to hear my voice for me to tell him what to do. And really evangelism at that level is being, finding somebody who doesn't know the goodness of God. They don't know how to hear his voice. They don't know who, who he is. And coming in and listening to him and being guided in to love them, care for them, and allow them to taste and see that he's good. So these aren't people that are going to take initiative and say, Dennis, I want to spend time with you because I think God's good and I want to grow with him. <laughs> you know, these are people who are going to say, well, I like you, so I'll hang out with you. And it's intentionally going after them before they can even reciprocate and spending time where they get to hear God through you and touch him. And, and you can start to talk to them. You've got to start to talk to them about, well, he speaks to you too, you know. And, and it's really a pursuit of them and getting them to, to really love him and to taste him and to, until they, they hit it. Well, then that next level is kind of a pastoral, pastoral relationship. That's where now they hear his voice. Now they know who he is. Now they've taken ownership of their relationship with him. And so now they're coming to you and they're saying, hey, I just need a little bit of help. I think he's saying this. Could you help me confirm what God's saying? That's a really important and a great stage. But then there's a third stage for me with people where they're pretty great at hearing God's voice and they've grown really well. And if anything, I learn a heck of a lot from them and now they're just my friends, you know? And so we still need each other's accountability. I need them to look in my eyes. They need me to look in their eyes, but there's that third stage. What I'm saying to you guys, and it may not seem like it's all that important, is that this has been our story. This is what we've done for a long time. If we don't do this, these guys will. And we went to a conference a few weeks ago, Catalyst. It was nice. There were lots of fireworks and pyrotechnics. And um, while at one point we were worshiping, they shot confetti out into the crowd. But what you're doing is if we vacate this spot, it will be filled by somebody else. And they haven't paid the price. And they don't share the wounds that we have. And what we'll do is we will take what we have given ourselves to and we'll pour it out like water. And you won't suffer, maybe but your grandchildren will, and the young people in the communities will. So what I'm saying is that this is a part of our story. This is a part of what we've fought through. This is a part of who we are, and it's still who we are. And so a turning back into our congregations, into our relationships, are there young men that you need to be with? Are there young men that you need to be meeting with? And it's not just coffee once a week. Jesus didn't just do coffee. Like maybe once a week would actually be good, but it's definitely not coffee once a month, you know? But how can you go with somebody? And how can they go with you? How can you invite them in? Um, uh, the other thing would be um, how can you, um, this is really interesting because we always want to attract young leaders these days, but young leaders aren't attracted to just being, um, uh, acquiesce to, or, or, or a great young leader kind of wants you to pop them in the chin. A great young leader really wants to be in a place where there's true development and where there's a challenge. Great young leaders have a strong sense that there's something bigger ahead, and they're hoping that there might be something in you that they'll rip out of you <laughs> to get a hold of to go further. And so sometimes our response has been, and we've done such a good job of making room for the young men, making room is, f is step one but then engaging and giving life is also such a critical, critical, critical part. I thought there was one more thing I wanted to tell you. I think you guys are great at this. I've always thought you're the people who always taught me. In a weird way, all we've done with Boy the Ball is make it a cottage industry to go out and teach uh, communities. And we were asked by the Fort Smith school district to come in and train their whole school district on mentoring the other day. I was just telling them what you guys have taught us, but they, it was great. And they paid us. Um, <laughs> 
But this is really the fight. I appreciate what you're saying about the need to get involved in the political fight, and I think that's absolutely critical. But if you really want to change our communities, it's the neighborhood-to-neighborhood, household-to-household fight about where are we in relationships. Because the gospel is not just about the political stands that are based on a tremendous amount of correct theology. It's really about why wasn't there a family that knew the girl, that connected with the girl before she ever ended up at the abortion clinic. And so when I think about seeing countries change, I think about family to family, person, young person to young person, reaching the next generation to see neighborhoods repopulated with families that are caring and connected and churches that are doing this stuff. So in some ways, when we talk about the, even the big stuff as far as massive international development and stuff, this is still the answer. It's going to come down to relationships, and it's going to come down to doing it well. Um, I want to tell you how much I love you and how much you have invested in me. You have not been easy on me at all. You've you have messed with me, and gosh, even Matt, uh, constantly. But I love it. That's why I come here. I come here to get to wrestle, and I think that that is our story. Thank you, guys.